0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome. To the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co host Glenn Ford. Coming up, community control of police. We'll hear from two advocates of making cops accountable to the people Colin Kaepernick demands freedom for Mumia Abu Jamal, and a former political prisoner is briefly jailed for registering to vote. But first, Native Americans say the holiday known as Thanksgiving is a celebration of genocide at the hands of European invaders and should be replaced by a national day of mourning. We spoke with Nick Estes, an activist member of the Sioux Nation, who teaches American studies at the University of New Mexico.
2: Everyone knows Thanksgiving is a national holiday for the United States, and Actually, I think it was first codified under Franklin Delano Roosevelt to kind of alleviate the suffering of hunger and poverty that want, that people were feeling during the Great Depression, uh, to have this kind of national holiday where p- uh, families got together and shared food. And so they had to make up something and find something in history to sort of justify it as, you know, all good myths in the United States. And so they, they chose the third week in November as that date, and then hymned it to the pilgrim mythology, which holds that in the early 1600s, pilgrims from Europe, from England, came over here to start a new life and to escape religious persecution in Europe. And as we know, that was completely false, that they had no intention of escaping religious persecution and finding freedom or creating freedom where they went. But it was actually part of a financial and colonial venture that there was an economic motive behind it. So the pilgrims who departed to Mayflower and founded Plymouth Plantation in 1620 didn't come to be integrated within the existing indigenous social order. They came to replace it. In 1637, after the slaughter of more than 700 Pequot women, children, and men, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, William Bradford, declared the settlers first thanksgiving the invaders first thanksgiving in which he said in honor of the bloody victory thanking god that the battle had been won and the massacre and its commemoration set the tone for what was to come and the creation of a nation not of immigrants but a nation of colonizers right because immigrants come to integrate within the existing social order settlers come to replace colonizers come to replace and so, instead of celebrating genocide, the National Day of Mourning was first organized by the Wampanoag people, the indigenous nation that still exists in Massachusetts, in Plymouth Bay. And so each year, Manuman James, a Wampanoag co leader of the United American Indians of New England, organizes the event and he tells the history of the whole celebration, and also why they come there every Thanksgiving as a day of mourning. And according to James, the National Day of Mourning was created to destroy the Pilgrim mythology. And on the first day of mourning in 1970, Indigenous protesters actually buried Plymouth Rock, not once, but twice, and boarded a Mayflower replica. The Union Jack was torn down from the mast and replaced with the same flag that flew over Alcatraz Island liberated by red power a- activists in 1969. And on the eastern shores of Turtle Island, the wapanoag people, of, they're called the people of the first light, to commemorate the genocide and theft of the continent at ground zero uh, with a day of mourning. And on the western shore, you know, so it's not just on the east, coast, but also on the west coast, Alcatraz Island on the same day, which is also the location of the dawn of the militant Arab Red Power protests, Indigenous people hold a sunrise ceremony to celebrate Indigenous resistance. And so in places like Albuquerque, traditionally, we've had a a National Day of Morning where a No Thanksgiving event where we join our brothers and sisters on both coasts, uh, in the Indigenous communities on both coasts in not so much an act of protest against the holiday itself, but also to reconceive our own forms of Indigenous ways of giving thanks, because this is a season, this is a harvest season for a lot of our people. And we do still come together, not to celebrate genocide, but to celebrate Indigenous resistance, and to celebrate the ongoing kind of fight uh, to liberate Turtle Island.
3: And many people in the United States don't know still to this day that Native Americans were also subject to slavery and that so-called pilgrims enslaved sent into West Indian slavery hundreds of Natives in Massachusetts.
2: Yeah, exactly. In places like New Mexico, where I'm calling you from, slavery was a lucrative enterprise that actually preceded anglo settler colonialism, and in fact, the Spanish had, you know, capitalized and created large, extensive slave networks that reached all the way up into the Northern Plains, where I'm actually from, and they would take those enslaved indigenous people, and there were several processes that happened. Some of them were shipped on slave ships down to work in mines in places like Peru or in other parts of what became Latin America or they were tied to the land here and turned into, you know, they're basically proletarianized. They're detribalized, they're stripped of their heritage, their culture, their language, and tied to the land, and then became essentially in a near caste-like system. I wouldn't call it 100% like caste, but it was a near caste-like racial hierarchy where they, you know, were just above uh, Native people themselves, free Native people, and they became what we know here in New Mexico as Inizados, But also in other parts of Latin America, especially in Mexico, they became, quote-unquote, mestizo. And we know that a lot of them retained their indigenous identity and retained their sense of self. And so that's a history that isn't talked about very much. And even after formal emancipation, after the Civil War, indigenous slavery in places like New Mexico continued on well into the 1880s
3: you're a Sioux, most folks in this country are aware of the armed resistance by the Sioux and the Apache and others in the late 1880s. But other Native groups in the Northeast around Massachusetts, for example, were at some point thought to be extinct, but have made their presence known in the last 40 or 50 years.
2: Exactly. I think the stereotypical image that most People have of indigenous people in this hemisphere are people who look like me phenotypically and who look like my people. Those who, you know, we had, you know, teepees, we hunted on horseback, we had, you know, a relationship with the Buffalo Nation who lived on the plains. But the reality is that, you know, there are over a thousand different indigenous nations in North America with distinct political, cultural, and language ties to each other and also to the land itself. And in a place like, you know, Massachusetts or so-called New England, these indigenous nations are thought to not exist at all. And in fact, when I lived in Boston, I was appalled by the northern liberalism that was so race conscious, but absolutely denied the presence of, you know, actually existing indigenous people. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. I think Trump has really put his finger on it in the early 1990s when he was testifying before Congress against the recognition of Connecticut Indigenous people and saying that, quote-unquote, they don't look like Indians to me. And what he meant, and I think what a lot of liberal so-called allies forget, is that Indigenous is not a race, right? And so these Indigenous people, especially in the Northeast, have mixed you know, with escaped African people, those who have escaped bondage, And so there's a capaciousness within their own tribal traditions to allow the intake of other people because they're not static, homogenous cultures. They're multiracial cultures. They're multiracial nations. And so they don't adhere to the standards of the white racial order that's imposed onto them, and therefore they're not recognized as being indigenous from that land. So it makes it easier for a place like Plymouth, which is a liberal Mecca, it's where a lot of wealthy, rich, white northerners have seasonal homes. They go there to vacation. Actually, when my partner and I first went out there, we stayed. Luckily, it was an off-season because we, otherwise we wouldn't have uh, been able to afford the uh, motel fares that they were charging because they were absolutely ridiculous. And so this area is completely colonized. I'm not using that as a metaphor. It is completely colonized by some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And if you don't believe me... Ask yourself why, if you're from a place like New York City, why you've never heard of the Shinnecock Nation. And the Shinnecock Nation is the indigenous people that live on what we know as the Hamptons, right? Some of the most powerful and richest people on the planet are in an active settler colonial project against the Shinnecock Nation because they still retain some scraps of their territory in the Hamptons themselves. And in fact, United American Indians of New England is teaming up with the Shinnecock Nation this Thanksgiving, this Thursday to hold a rally and protest because the Shinnecock have been holding a sovereignty camp to protest the continued development of their land at their expense, but for the benefit of these wealthy capitalists who are coming in and turning the land into some kind of resort. So it's important to remember that in places like New England, The Indigenous war is still hot for a lot of Indigenous people who live there. And we can see that in the way that just in the Trump administration in the last uh, year, 2020 has been a hell of a year, but his administration, his self-appointed Indigenous ambassador, the Secretary of Indian Affairs under the Department of Interior, she's an Alaskan Native woman, actually has begun a process of termination against Wampanoag people because they were trying to build uh, housing development for their elders. And it conflicted with local white interests, white settler interests in the area. And so they petitioned the federal government, and the federal government decided to strip them of their recognition status. Of course, that was reversed thanks to the protests of many indigenous people. But nonetheless, the threat is real. The United States government, the federal system, holds the power to extinguish indigenous people at the drop of a hat. And they also hold the power to not recognize indigenous people. And we can see that in state-recognized tribes like the Lumbee Nation, which is a large indigenous nation in places like North Carolina, you know, in the South. So it is an ongoing issue. And I think as the National Day of Mourning tries to push, as well as what we try to push in our organization, the Red Nation, is that we can't let the colonizer define who we are. And we also can't cry on their shoulder because they're the ones that are taking our land. And the only way we can win is if we fight back.
3: Has the incoming Biden administration made any specific commitments to Native Americans?
2: Biden has expanded the Obama-era Indian policy by saying he wants to revamp it because Trump gutted out the White House Council on Native American Affairs. He wants to appoint a lot of the same not people but like minded people who were in the Obama administration back into his administration to sort of restart the, you know, Obama era policies. And there's a lot of speculation about who he's gonna pick for certain positions. I think a lot of tribes are pushing him to pick Deb Holland, who is a congressional representative here in New Mexico, she's also a Laguna woman, for the Department of Interior. And a lot of us who, you know, remember life under Obama during his tenure, we can think of the most significant protest, indigenous protest movement of the century and its standing rock. And that happened under Obama's administration and Joe Biden's administration, because the two of them and their lackeys decided that it was not politically convenient for them to take a stand against oil infrastructure pipeline. Because it might weaken their chances at reelecting some people in their party, like moving forward into the Trump administration. And also, it was an election year, and Hillary Clinton, one of the people that water protectors, especially the youth water protectors, first tried to petition was actually Hillary Clinton's campaign. They ran from Standing Rock over 2,500 miles to Washington, D.C., and went to Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters and set up a teepee. And they were evicted because she refused to uh, listen to what their demands were. And then also Obama, he was one of six sitting presidents to actually visit an Indian reservation during his time in office. And the place that he visited was Standing Rock back in 2014. And his connection to Standing Rock isn't just him and Michelle Obama doing photo ops, putting Native children in their laps, and then, of course, the uh, saying that they're part of the family, et cetera. But Jody Gillette was actually the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's sister, and she was appointed in the Obama administration. I think she had subsequently resigned from her post prior to the protests themselves. But nonetheless, Standing Rock had a connection to Obama during that entire time that the state of North Dakota deployed 90 different law enforcement jurisdictions to crush an unarmed protest of some of the most impoverished people in this hemisphere. And so that was Obama's Indian policy. That was what he should have been remembered for. But the man and his lackeys are like Teflon and nothing sticks to them. And so nobody has adequately challenged the Democratic Party about the fact that they oversaw one of the most brutal crackdowns on an indigenous movement in this century. Instead, there is the politics of representation, that if we can get somebody in in this white supremacist power structure, that somehow it will benefit us. I yeah, know I think a lot of uh, myself and a lot of my comrades and fellow thinkers are very skeptical of you know, just putting brown faces in high places because it doesn't fundamentally change the relationship between the United States and indigenous nations, which is the colonial relationship, right? You can't decolonize the Department of Interior, a department that oversees one quarter of all emissions on public lands, of carbon emissions on public lands, a department that has houses both wildlife and and human beings, you know, indigenous people, because the Bureau of Indian Affairs is under the Department of Interior, a department that has been the handmaiden to oil and gas and extractivist industries by opening up previously protected areas for mining and extraction to benefit not the people who take care of the land, indigenous people, but to benefit the settler economy and to benefit a handful of oil and gas executives. So I think there's a little bit more danger uh, in the Biden administration than the Trump administration, because Trump makes clear who his enemies are and who his friends are, whereas Biden has tried to get us to believe that these institutions can be reformed for the benefit of Indigenous people, when at no point in history has that ever been the case has the Department of Interior been a friend to Indigenous people, right? No matter who is in that position, because the entire department has historically been a clearinghouse for oil and gas lobbyists and executives. So it's pretty obvious where, if we look at history, where the allegiances lie in those kinds of appointments. This era is the era of land back. We've gone through several eras of Indian policy in the last, just in the last century from termination to so-called self-determination, which was really just the era of consultation. We're going to consult you as we destroy your lands. And people are trying to move us into a different era of consent. And while I'm sympathetic, and I think a lot of us are sympathetic to that transformation, the demand and the aspiration remains the same. Land back to Indigenous people. We're no longer going to cry on the shoulder of the man who stole our land. And if we can't get from the system what is rightfully ours, then as the movements are showing in places like the Hamptons and Shinnecock Territory or in a place where I'm from in, in Rapid City and Miniluzaha or elsewhere in the many camps that are existing in so-called Canada right now, land back is a legitimate demand by Indigenous people. And if that phrase makes you uncomfortable, You should listen to what the indigenous land defenders are actually saying, because ownership and property in the United States is the fundamental regime of control, of oppression, and provides the economic base for what became the United States. Our Black relatives have been categorically excluded from ownership in this nation. Over 90% of privately owned land in this country is owned by white people, primarily men. Capitalists such as Ted Turner own 200,000 acres of my treaty territory. And so when we talk about land back, most people, most colonized, most working class people in this country are not land owners. It doesn't affect you. And in fact, there's a capaciousness within the land back movement to include those who have been categorically denied access to land, but who actually have deep historical relationships to the land, such as our Black relatives and those who come in as migrant workers. And that's something that we respect and that we actually uphold and honor because the only reason we're having this conversation about land back and the only reason why it's gained any traction is because our Black relatives have created space for us in this year, in 2020 and historic uprisings against police violence, right? For us to have this conversation. And so we know that, we understand that and we respect it. And we also understand that black and indigenous isn't mutually exclusive, right? That it includes, like I said before, our nations are multiracial nations, we are nations, right? And so that's the way we think about ourselves in the peoplehood framework. And I think in this era of catastrophic climate change and ecological destruction, we can't look to the traditional liberal led environmental movements who choose a Swedish girl as their icon when we have the original instructions coming out of the global south and we have our brother, you know, Evo Morales being overthrown, but then returning as millions as he predicted, paraphrasing Tupac Qatari, the indigenous leader. And he came back and with the elections and pushed back a CIA backed coup and. The administration that he was a part of was not only overthrown, but the vision of eco-socialism that's grounded in indigenous worldviews was also overthrown. The rights of nature came from Bolivia in 2010 in the Cochabamba Accords. The idea of climate debt that these first world imperialist nations owe it to the rest of the world to help them transition away from fossil fuels, but also have to pay their fair share because they've colonized the atmosphere with their carbon emissions, and nobody else can follow that path of development. And they've also opened up the opportunity for thinking about a social relation that's not based on consumption, and that well-being is measured not by how much one can consume, because if the rest of the planet consumed as much as the United States, we would need three planets to live. So the idea is not consumption, it's the quality of life. Living the good life in how one relates to each other as human beings and correcting those relations, as well as how one relates to the earth. And that, my friends, is not an exclusively indigenous project. That is the project of humanity.
1: That was Nick Estes, an organizer with the Red Nation. Black psychology students at Bowie State University in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., last week held a panel discussion on police brutality and community control of the police. One of those that spoke was Netfa Freeman, an organizer with Pan-African Community Action, which is pushing for community control of the police. Freeman says police are a militarized force of oppression.
4: The police are there because of the oppressive system. They're there to enforce oppression. Oppression is not here because of the police. And so because of that, our solutions have to be grounded in having to address the origins or the source of our oppression. We acknowledge that the whole lot of funding and the people's monies appropriated from them in the form of taxes is going to bloated budgets of police around the country and also the military, and that no one can argue against the need for taking that money or those funds and putting them elsewhere for the needs of the people and the needs of the world. However, that is not really something that can happen as long as those whose fundamental interests are realized through capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy are in control. In fact, the military and the police are instruments of enforcing that paradigm in the United States. We live in a settler colonial situation. This is a settler colony where people, Europeans from Britain came here and settled here and decided to break from Britain and create its own country. And that's what we live in today. The fundamental nature of that still exists. What settler colonialism is and how it expresses itself in this country Is through the three-headed hydra of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy, and we have to remember that. And that is enforced through the organizational enforcement of that is through the state. The state enforces these things, and that the police and the military are extensions of the state. And so without understanding that, I think it becomes necessary for us to understand that if we're to understand how to address this problem that we have about the repression of the state. We're in a critical time, a critical moment, and some would say every moment is critical, but as capitalism late-stage capitalism reaches that was referred to as neoliberalism austerity and automation of things and the commodification of things all of that intensifying the class disparities and inequality the state will have no other choice but to also intensify its repression of us people will be in dire straits they're going to want to protect their property and those things are of interest of them and those of us who are victims of this system are in the majority because it concentrates as a consequence of it concentrating power and wealth and, and those things then that means the majority of people will be outside of those things and this is across race lines in this country and actually in the world but it's also manifested through and exacerbated through the racial dynamics of settler colonialism in the United States so we're actually living in an unsustainable system that really has no other option but to intensify its repression through mass incarceration and police killings and police brutality. Um, And it doesn't matter which party These political parties are in in power. As long as these parties that subscribe to capitalism and won't admit it, but actually have to subscribe also to white supremacy and patriarchy, then we're going to face an intensified repression. Community control of police, and I think I might want to make the distinction here between community control of the police is something we've picked up as a campaign that we see as organizing the community. And I guess it's much more accurate to really refer to it as community control of public safety, but it is really a way to create autonomous zones of power, localized organizing, so that people actually, and, and democratic localized organizing, so people can actually take control over public safety, and not just public safety, but a whole number of things, the economy, the systems of institutions of power like judicial and those kind of things. We can implement our own institutions. And then as a campaign that we force the contradiction in this country of the centralized state control, even the police and I know most people really understand how much the centralization of the police goes all the way up to the federal level. They organize police and actually goes internationally. They organize international associations of police chiefs that travel around the world and train police forces in around the world. So what we're actually trying to do is expose the contradiction and use even some of their own Disingenuous rhetoric against them that says that they're for democracy and things and say, well, if you're for democracy, then there should be nothing wrong with us having community control over institutions like the police, particularly police as the frontline and the shock troops that they send in to occupy our communities. We want to make a distinction, but so community control of the police would be a concept in which we organize and we have whatever structures are necessary, like board community control boards that would make decisions about the priorities and the. Policies of the police, what they're supposed to do, and the consequences if they do something wrong, that we control everything. And, and in fact, in such a way that would allow the people to re envision and reimagine what a force like this is really to protect and serve the people would look like. In fact, some of us have suggested that it would be so unrecognizable from what we call the police now that it would really, we wouldn't even be able to call it the police. We want to make a distinction between community control of the police and community policing. We hear that a lot and we want to make this distinction. It's very important distinction to make because we've also, in this new time, have encountered a lots of discussions about police, defunding police, abolishing police, community control of the police, and often we find that people are using them interchangeable, community control of the police and community policing. Community policing is a PR thing that comes out of the state that suggests that the community work with the people to exercise fighting crime and all these kind of things, which would effectively mean that the community is being an accomplice. To exercising settler colonialism, mass incarceration, police brutality, those kind of things. You get to know the, the officer in your community and you, and they're working with you to, to snitch on your, your family members and your, your people in your community. Well, we're saying that we reject that we're not for community policing, we're for community control over the police. And if we want to call it something else, community control over public safety, what have you, then we want to make sure that it's clear that that's what we're for. And the distinction between community policing and community control of the police, they're not interchangeable, and they are distinctly different. In fact, an example was during the debates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, the Moderator asked him, Are you for community control of the police? The Black Lives Matter community control of the police was just complete misinformation right there. But he made a point of saying, I'm for community policing. You could tell he was not for this, whatever you're talking about, community having control of anything. And so, there it tells you that that's something that the state embraces. I want to get to the question of defunding police and abolishing police, which is something that we have no problems with. We think that, however, though, that power is the essential issue, and that without the power to enact and implement any type of reform, and not a, whether it's reformers reform or radical reformer or not, we can't. Realize anything. The state will not defund or abolish the police. So, any demand in which we can't organize around that means that we have to organize the people to have the ability to enact and implement certain things really can be used against us or can be not paid attention to. For example, defunding the police could allow and we've seen it in certain areas recently, where they just sort of fiddle with the budget and they reduce it a little bit and they shift money around here and there, but it doesn't change the power dynamics between the people and the state. And this is what we have to be focused on. An abolitionist framework presupposes that the power of the people be realized and that those who benefit from the current situation will not be left up to making the changes. We also know, one, community control of the police as we see it, the Pan-African Community Action, we would challenge the state through a ballot initiative asking for community control, but also, and the most important part of it, even more important than the ballot initiative, is that we're organizing the people. We're organizing committees and councils and caucuses and structures that people would need in order to exercise self-determination on the local level. So it's not just community control, the police, but community control over everything, our food and, and whatever else we can do. And those things are, we'll find that if we don't address all of those things, try to have some sort of program and strategy that addresses all of those things, not even one of them will work by itself. And so that's our position. And so what we're really looking to do is to organize. And we think we're seeing this around not just the country, but around the world where people are realizing that they have to organize autonomous zones, autonomous zones that can exercise an independence from state structures, from the oppressive state structures that are, are governing our lives. And we have to do it regardless of whether it gets sanctioned from the powers that be. But at the same time we're organizing it, we also have to challenge the powers that be through being in the streets, through you know demonstrations, direct actions, and all that. But also by trying to wage campaigns, like for example, and community control, and I can't not mention the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression that we're also a member of. We have to challenge the, for community control through either a ballot initiative or through some type of city council mandate or something like that. Different places will have different ways of doing it, but we have to make sure that we challenge the state while we are also organizing internal to our people, and that we also connect the organizing and the survival programs and everything that we can muster, the mutual aid. We have to connect it in a way that helps us build transcontinental connections. The National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression was an organization that was formed in the early 70s, but then also because of COINTELPRO and Counterintelligence Program and other issues had to discontinue. It was reformed just last October, and we, as the organization, and several other peoples, convened in Chicago and re-established the refounding of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Several organizations are across the country are members of it, and the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression also has as its primary mandate making community control of the police a national campaign and trying to organize people to try to realize that wherever we are. Now, I find it interesting that when that took place, it was just before the pandemic, just before the George Floyd uprising, that we're hearing calls for other things. And there were even being suggestions that community control of the police is in contradiction with or antithetical to abolishing the police. I think there's a lot more to be said about that in terms of realization of an abolishment, much more complicated and long-term thing. But I think that we got to get in and we will have to have that conversation But right now we have to organize for power and we have to start with the frontline troops that are enforcing the repression we're facing as a result of neoliberal capitalism, late stage capitalism, turning into fascism.
1: Former Black Panther Party member, Daruba Ben-Wahad, spent 19 years as a political prisoner. He told the Bowie State University panel that we need to create a national front of organizations all demanding community control of police.
0: The major focus of policing has always been control of property. And African people at one time in history were property. That's what three-fifths of a human being constitutes. So it's no coincidence that the police treats us as extensions of property, of ownership. They own our bodies. They own it to the point where they can kill us. So when we come up with a hashtag slogan like Black Lives Matter, we open up ourselves to a whole plethora of counterarguments that the enemy could use against us to muddy the waters. Black lives have never mattered in America. We need to understand that. It was always a question of mind over matter. White folks didn't mind and Black folks didn't matter. So we should really understand what that means. What that means concretely is that unless we abolish policing as it's presently constituted and interrupt this command and control structure so that the political elite, the corporate elite, that money, that Zionists cannot control policing in our community, then we are not going to go anywhere. The police will not back down. They will not back down. And we need to understand that. And I was just looking at some statistics from an organization that's on the front lines there in the streets, and they showed that the demonstrations that were occurring in June and and May have plummeted because of police repression. Over 20,000 activists have been run through the court, and they're not being arrested for unlawful assembly or disorderly conduct. They're being arrested for, for instance, obstructing interstate commerce. They're being arrested for um, destruction of property and all of this stuff. And these are some more serious charges. And there's a reason for that because the majority of young people on the streets are not in touch with their radical history, with the radical tradition. We done been here and did this before. We know what they're going to do. They have a playbook and they go to their playbook. If we look at most of the debates between presidential candidates going all the way back to 1960 with Nixon and Kennedy, we see that they are using the same rhetoric in 1960 they're using now. Why has America lost its mojo and its leadership that we need to come together as a nation? All of this stuff, we need to understand that what we have to do is take initiatives that will ensure our victory or ensure the victory that we've already achieved. And that means that, for instance, to give you a practical organizing tool, the organizing point, we need to organize this mass movement. Mass mobilization is not organization, and we need to organize it. And as Nefta pointed out, the reestablishment of the National Front Against Racism and Police Brutality that was reconstituted in Chicago is one step. If we look at the history of the Black Panther Party, we see that in 1969, the Black Panther Party organized the national conference to combat fascism, a national front. And it called together every major organization in the country at that time that was demonstrating against racism, that was demonstrating against the wars in Vietnam, that was demonstrating against migrant workers and, and their rights in the South. We called them together, and over 8,000 people showed up. And from that initial organization, we established over 20 chapters of national committees to combat fascism in each city. And the purpose of these national committees were to do exactly what Nefta was talking about, put on the referendum community control of police, not decentralization of police. We weren't talking about community policing, as Nefta definitely pointed out. We were not talking about community review boards which is, in fact, what they flipped it to, and, it, and that's what came out of that, was community review boards. But we were talking about decentralization of police. We got to understand it. That's very, very important. Defunding the police, yeah, that's okay. But we know that just to defund the police doesn't change the police ability and militarization or ability to inflict the type of control they do on our communities. So we have to talk about why the police are so unable to respond to concrete abolition and change. And that is because they're armed agents of the state. And this is something that we really, really got to drive home to activists, that these are not just cops coming, punching the clock and workers. They're not workers. This is why the police unions are forbidden to call a strike. Police can't go on strike. This is why they use terms like blue flu when they, ha- they want to get their beef off. But they form political alliances with the political elite. So that anyone that runs for political if they don't get the endorsement of the police union. They're going to have a hard time. They're going to be called soft on crime, soft on law enforcement and all of these things. So we need to understand this, the police union that we have to take down. And the way we go after them is very, very simple. We need to file a national class action. We need to get activist attorneys to come together and form a class action against the five major police unions in the nation and push for their decertification. And we have the documentation to show this, that they interfere with policing on our local levels. They interfere with policing policy in the Black community. They don't live in the black community. They don't represent the black community. There has to be residency clauses when we talk about defunding, when we talk about decentralization of police. We have to take away their command and control structure. We have to take away the ability of mayors and city councils to appoint a police chief themselves. We have to put that in the hands of public safety boards. So the community then can take their own positions on how policing should go down in their community. We need residency clauses for cops when they first become cops so that they live in the communities, which means that real estate has to set aside certain types of housing for police officers who are going to live in our community. Their children should go to our schools. So if they go to our schools, we don't have to have shakedowns at the schools and and gun booths and metal, metal detectors and our schools look like prisons.
1: That was former political prisoner Doruba Bin wahad speaking at Bowie State University. Colin Kaepernick, the former National Football League quarterback who has effectively been banned from playing because of his political beliefs, was part of a virtual press conference last week demanding the release of the nation's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Kaepernick says Abu-Jamal's continued imprisonment is a crime against humanity.
5: When I was invited to speak on behalf of Mumia, one of the first things that came to mind was how long he's been in prison, how many years of his life have been stolen away from him, his community, and his loved ones. He's been incarcerated for 38 years. Mumia has been in prison longer than I've been alive. When I first spoke with Mumia on the phone, I did very little talking I just listened. Hearing him speak was a reminder of why we must continue to fight. Earlier this year, the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner issued a statement noting that prolonged solitary confinement, the precise type often used in the United States, amounts to psychological torture Mumia Abu-Jamal has spent roughly 30 out of his 38 years in solitary confinement. In his book, Live from Death Row, Mumia wrote that prison is a second-by-second assault on the soul, a day-to-day degradation of the self, an oppressive steel and brick umbrella that transforms seconds into hours and hours into days. He has had to endure this second-by-second assault, on his soul for 38 years. He had no record before he was arrested and framed for the death of a Philadelphia police officer. Since 1981, Mumia has maintained his innocence. His story has not changed. Mumia was shot, brutalized, arrested, and chained to a hospital bed. The first police officer assigned to him wrote in a report that the Negro male made no comment as cited in Philly Mag. Yet 64 days into the investigation, another officer testified that Mumia had confessed to the killing. Mumia's story has not changed. But we're talking about the same Philadelphia Police Department whose behavior shocks the conscious, according to a 1979 DOJ report. Behaviors like shooting nonviolent suspects, abusing handcuffed prisoners, and tampering with evidence. It should therefore come as little surprise that according to Dr. Johanna Fernandez, over one-third of the 35 officers involved in Mumia's case were subsequently convicted of rank corruption, extortion, and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions in unrelated cases. This is the same Philadelphia Police Department where officers ran racial profiling sweeps like Operation Cold Turkey in March 1985, targeting black and brown folks, and bombed the Move House in May of that year, killing 11 people, including five children, and destroying 61 homes. The same Philadelphia Police Department whose officers eight days before the 2020 presidential election shot Walter Wallace Jr. dead in the streets, in front of his crying mother. The Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police has unrelentingly campaigned for Mumia's execution. During their August 1999 national meeting, a spokesperson for the organization stated that they will not rest until Abu Jamal burns in hell. The former Philadelphia president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Richard Costello, went as far as to say that if you disagree with their views of Mumia, you can join him in the electric chair and that they will make it an electric couch. The trial judge on Mumia's case in 1981, Albert Sabo, was a former member of the Fraternal Order of Police. Court reporter Terry Moore Carter overheard Judge Sabo telling a colleague, I'm going to help them fry the nigger. Found in December 2018, in an inaccessible storage room of the DA's office, six boxes of documents from Mumia's case reveal previously undisclosed and highly significant evidence showing that Mumia's trial was tainted by a failure to disclose material evidence in violation of the United States and Pennsylvania constitutions. In November, 2019, the Fraternal Order of Police filed a King's Bench Petition, asking the court to allow the State Attorney General, not the Philadelphia DA's office, to handle the upcoming appeals. As the FOP President John McNesby said, just last year, Mumia should remain in prison for the rest of his life and a King's Bench Order provides the legal angle for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to uphold Judge Sabo's original wish, which was for Mumia ultimately to die in prison. Today we are living through a moment where it's acceptable to paint End Racism Now in front of the Philadelphia Police Department's 26th District Headquarters. And yet a political prisoner who has since the age of 14 dedicated his life to fighting against racism, continues to be caged and lives his life on a slow death row. We're in the midst of a movement that says black lives matter. And if that's truly the case, then it means that Mumia's life and legacy must matter. And the causes that he sacrificed his life and freedom for must matter as well. Through all of the torture Mumia has suffered over the past 38 years, His principles have never wavered. These principles have manifested themselves in his writing countless books while incarcerated, in his successful radio show, in the time and energy he has poured into his mentorship of younger incarcerated folks, and the continued concern with the people suffering outside of the walls. Even while living in the hells of the prison system, Mumia still fights for our human rights. We must continue to fight for him and his human rights. Mumia is 66 years old. He is a grandfather. He is an elder with ailments. He is a human being that deserves to be free. Free Mumia. That was banned football quarterback, Colin Kaepernick.
1: Former Black Panther, Jalil Muntakeem, spent 49 years in prison until he was released on parole in October. When Muntakeem returned to his family home in Rochester, New York, he registered to vote, a mistake for which he was briefly jailed. We spoke with Muntakeem's cousin, Blake Simons.
6: He was literally arrested in front of his mom for quote-unquote alleged voter fraud, right? But this really all started, and I think this is what it's important people pay attention to, it's exactly what's going on in the in the national condition of this country right now. You have the president of this country calling, you know, this election was a fraud, saying, oh, voter fraud was happening, saying, you know, it was a fake election. Um, All these fake votes happened, right? And then you have a so-called radio host, a Republican radio host, stirring a bunch of drama about, you know, Jalil being paroled in New York. And then he's the one who... Basically he he's the one who 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 put all this propaganda, this white supremacist propaganda out about Jaleel. And then Bill Napier, who's the chairman of the local Republican Party, called on DA Dorley, who was a GOP herself, to arrest and prosecute Jaleel for alleged vote voter fraud. So I think it it needs to be very clear that this is a, a GOP orchestrated attack and it fits in within the narrative that Donald Trump is pushing and now Bill Napier is pushing it on a local level in Rochester. Oh that the quote-unquote left-wing is staging a, a lie <laughs> on the election, right, by trying to set up an election. And so I think it's very important for people to understand, understand the national and see what's happening to the local, and then Jalil is caught, you know, caught in this crosshair of this propaganda war that the far-right is using.
3: And I assume that the police union had something to do with this.
6: Oh, of course, of course. I mean, it, it's something to do with announced that Jalil was to come home. That he was paroled. The police union put their propaganda their racist propaganda out, saying, "Oh, he should still be locked up. He should still be incarcerated." So we know, of course, that the police union is is somewhere involved. But it, it's the combination of the police unions, the combination of the GOP, you know, and, and these far right actors working together, like they do, to terrorize an elder who is still healing from COVID nineteen, right?
3: So how supportive has Black Rochester been for Jalil Muktakem?
6: Yeah, I think Jalil, you know, he's a widely respected elder, right? Widely respected, Um, not just amongst Black people, but by all people, right? The Black community has welcomed him, and the community of Brighton, the community of Rochester, you know, has welcomed him with open arms, with open arms, and, and supported him. They did a press conference in support of him. Local faith leaders did a press conference in support of him, right? So... You know, the people have welcomed him home, right? He is wanted in that community. He's a respected elder in that community. So the people want him home. And these far-right racist attacks against him that are trying to take him away from my family, trying to take him away from his daughter, trying to take him away from his mother. So, you know, we need all people to be speaking up about this case and and calling, you know, for hands off Jalil, right? Because that's of, of utmost importance.
3: We know that you're close to Brother Muta Kim. What's he planning to do with his life outside of bars?
6: Spend time with his family, reconnect with his family, you know, reconnect with his daughter and, and his mom, be able to enjoy freedom, you know what I mean? To be with his family. He has grandchildren, great-grandchildren, right? So he's most excited to spend time with his family, reconnect with the family, and, and enjoy his life. Enjoy his life.
3: And we hope, Brother Muta Kim, has good legal counsel.
6: Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's got some great lawyers working super hard to make sure that, you know, this doesn't happen, that he doesn't, the case is a setup. We have to be very clear. This this case was a setup. This was this, a case that was used, in my opinion, to try and get his parole revoked. Because these charges, they don't match. There isn't a case here, which we know. But I, I believe what was happening is the, you know, GOP was using this as their strategy to attack Jalil and to get him his parole rescinded, which didn't happen. So he has a great local team of lawyers, some great lawyers, lawyers you know, supporting him. So J- Jalil will be free, and it's just up to us to say hands off Jaleel. Yeah, I think one thing to, to name is being on parole does not prevent one from voting in New York. You know, Governor Cuomo regularly issues conditional pardons to people on parole, which allows them to vote. And, you know, this is done on an individual basis and usually takes some time after a person is released. And currently there is a bill that is pending before the New York state legislature that would permit all parolees to vote. So why, we have to ask ourselves, why is the state targeting someone like Julio, right? And it's very clear that A, it is the far right, it's the white supremacists, it's the GOP, it's the Trumps, but it's also the police unions and the conservative political forces in the city that also want to make sure that anybody who has been convicted of a crime, A, never leaves prison, and B, never has their voting rights restored. So I think it's important that people pay attention to what's going on to our political prisoners because what happens to our political prisoners will happen to everyone else at some point in time. So we have to support the
3: rights of our political prisoners and free them all. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.